That was the opening music to Taxi Driver, released in 1976. And the music in this movie was composed by one of our favorites, Bernard Herrmann. And it was actually his last film that he was able to uh, work on. And it stars uh, Robert De Niro, Jodie Foster, Sybil Shepard. Albert Brooks, Harvey Keitel. Yep. And a bunch of great supporting characters. Um, Peter Boyle. Yeah, I like him. (laughs) (laughs) He's got great hair. He's got... And he's very philosophical as a cab driver. He is, yeah. Although De Niro's character said, I don't understand a word you said. (laughs) It also... uh, uh, Martin Scorsese, the director, also appears in a couple scenes. uh, So interesting movie and the cinematographer uh i was reading about him he did the second uh well he did the remake of invasion of the body snatchers he was the uh director of photography on that well michael chapman i didn't know that and he also directed clan of the cave bears remember that one with daryl hannah i do i you know i've never seen it it was a very popular book i remember that yeah I, i went to see it in the theater it was it was yeah, it was pretty interesting. Anyway, I love the music, I love the cinematography, and the, the, the direction was great, and the acting was great. So, there you go, there's our review. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and we actually are going to do a, a review of the movie, not just that uh, 15 seconds there. And you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. And I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm coming to you from windy, stormy North Bend today. And this is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, where we're having Seattle-like weather, a little overcast and kind of cool. Welcoming everybody back to Classic Movie Reviews and 1976 Taxi Driver, one of the uh, 25 films that Martin Scorsese has directed over his career covering a wide variety of subjects and topics. Uh, Both Matt and I had not seen this film before, so it was new to us, and uh, we uh, we liked it a lot. Uh, Scorsese's, uh, I've seen about half of his films, and I came up with a list of things that seem to be themes in his films, which are true here. they're very graphic portrayals of of the uh, themes, and that was certainly the case with New York City. They can be nudie, uh, nudie, <laughs> moody, moody. <laughs> but we could clean that up. Moody, sometimes depressing. Lots of night scenes in the film that we've seen. That's happened before. It reminded me of Blade Runner with the night scenes in the rain. He does a lot of character development. And uh, when they filmed it, uh, New York was having problems financially, so a lot of those buildings were actually ones that existed. And they reminded me of the old uh, buildings that were used during the West filming a West Side Story. Oh, yeah. They were in a different yeah. section of Manhattan, but again, it was right before they were torn down. So anyway, back to my themes on Corsese. He, he touches on Italian-American identity, Catholic concepts of guilt and redemption, faith, machismo, crime, tribalism, to mention just a few. That seems pretty pretty accurate from the ones I've seen, that's for sure. Do you have a favorite Scorsese film? I do. I just wondered if you might have one. That's a good question. While you're looking that up, I'll, I give you, I'll give you mine from 2006, The Departed, which takes place in the Boston metropolitan area with a whole range of uh, well-known actors. Um, it's, a, it's a dandy. It won an Academy Award for Best Picture. Gangs of New York was good. I oh, that. yeah. Cape Fear. Oh, that was a good one. I love that movie. Also starring Robert De Niro. Yeah, De Niro, I think, has made nine films with uh, Mr. Scorsese. Yeah, I really like Cape Fear. Color of Money was pretty good. I think maybe Cape Fear might be my favorite, though. That was a great remake of the original... He's made a lot of lot of interesting films. Remember, we went to see Goodfellas in nineteen ninety two or nineteen ninety three. I forget when it came out. Uh, at the theater that's no longer there, at the foothill of 
Queen Anne Hill. Some parts of uh, some parts of this movie, and I, now that I'm thinking about Cape Fear, kind of remind me a little bit of Hitchcock. Yeah, that's one. Uh, he he's a big Hitchcock fan. I know his one of his top twelve uh, films, Scorsese's uh, view of the top twelve films, was uh, uh, Vertigo. Mm, that makes sense. The, uh, another couple things about New York at this time: they were having a heat wave. And so it was really hot while they were there filming on location. And there was also a uh, garbage collector strike. So um, garbage was piling up on the street, which I think could only add to the atmosphere of, of this film. You know, when it opens and, and it's rainy and dark and you see all the lights, I was thinking of the opening of, again, of Blade Runner. Had that same atmospheric kind of claustrophobic sort of grungy feel. And I've never seen oh, so totally. many young women in uh, atrocious-looking hot pants. <laughs> really really tight, uh, tall shoes. Uh, yeah, yeah, those big old cork shoes, yeah. Quite a yeah, film. Yeah, the way that it opens up is interesting because it's just it's scenes of, of New York and kind of driving around the town. Yeah, it's night, and, and uh, you can see sort of through the windshield, through the rain and the wipers, different neon signs, but they're kind of blurry. Yeah. And uh, that goes on for quite a while. I love the uh, opening credits, the way they're done. They cut to his eyes, and he's, and he's looking, 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 looking. He's watching people. He, he was an interesting character. This is uh, Robert De Niro's portrayal of Travis Bickle. And uh, again, it's really a, 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 a vivid and, and, and um, broad characterization of, of Travis. He was in the Marine Corps and was honorably discharged. And this was, this film was taking place in 1975-76, so I assume he was in the Marine Corps, probably in Vietnam. Um, he's estranged from his mother and dad, at least that's my takeaway, and he's kind of deceiving them with his... He's working for the government in a secret project mm -hmm. and can't tell them that. He's a yeah. loner, pretty lonely, He's, it's an understatement to say he's got awkward interpersonal relationships. And and uh, he lives in this dingy little apartment. I read a lot of the trivia about the movie, and the writer, Paul Schrader, uh, wrote this based on some of his own experiences I saw in that, Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah. And he, he kind of went through some of the same experiences in terms of what it was like to be so lonely and, and disconnected from society. He said he was living in his car for a while. Yeah. And then he said that he, he started off writing the story about the about loneliness, but then he realized it was really about the pathology of loneliness and what you go through. It was almost like how it bec how loneliness can become an illness almost. And I think his character had some underlying mental health issues anyway. So the fact that, you know, that he was so much of a loner was probably an outgrowth of some other things that he had going on. And he was constantly popping some kinds of pills like speed. Yeah, we who never know what that was. We never know what that is. He, he, he wants to get a job as a taxi driver because he wants to work long hours. Yeah, he can't sleep. He, he wants to work so he doesn't have to have insomnia and sit around in that little apartment that he had. And he works, sometimes he works from six in the uh, evening till six, seven or eight in the morning. So he's working like 12, 13, 14 hour days driving a cab. That, that's, a, that's a lot of driving. May 10th, thank God for the rain, which has helped wash away the garbage and the trash off the sidewalks. I'm working long hours now, six in the afternoon to six in the morning, sometimes even eight in the morning, six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. It's a long hustle, but it keeps me real busy. I can take in three, 350 a week, sometimes even more when I do it off the meter. My, my uh, takeaway from his personal life, I think his best friends, if they can be called that, were the uh, fellow taxi drivers that he met at different uh, cafeterias or, or coffee shops around the city. Peter Boyle was one of them and, and uh, some others. And their interaction was sort of like superficially friendly. and, and uh, But we really didn't have anyone 
that 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 I would think of as a friend. Yeah, he never brings anybody back to his apartment. He never goes to anybody else's apartment, even though he tries with uh, Betsy. I felt a lot of sadness for him because I think he's just such a lost soul. He needed help. Like, he, he yeah. desperately needed some help, and he just couldn't get it. There wasn't, I don't think, any way for him to get it that was really readily available to him. So he just sort of descended further and further and further throughout the movie into this, like, madness, this, I don't know, psychosis that he had. Because he's 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 convinced that the city of New York is 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 really just gone to to hell for lack of a better way to say it, and he he thinks that the whole city just needs to be cleaned out. And he had that interesting little conversation with the the politician in his cab. Yes, yeah, boy, he finally opened up and and talked about his true feelings. I don't think we have to worry about anybody here committing themselves until things start coming in from California now. Listen, this is just making me nervous. I think we should have waited for the limo. I don't mind taking a cab, and I mind going out to California without the right preparation. That's going to get us in trouble. I'll tell you what. Uh, are you Charles Palantine, a candidate? Yes, I am. I'm one of your biggest supporters, you know. I tell everybody that comes in this taxi that they have to vote for you. Why, thank you. Travis? I'm sure you're going to win, sir. Everybody I know is going to vote for you. You know, in fact, I was going to put one of your stickers in my taxi, but, you know, the company said it was against their policy. But they don't know anything, you know? They're a bunch of jerks. Let me tell you something. I have learned more about America from riding in taxi cabs than in all the limos in the country. Oh, yeah? That's true. Can I ask you something, Travis? Sure. What is the one thing about this country that bugs you the most? Well, I don't know. You know, I don't follow political issues that closely, sir. I don't know. Oh, well, there must be something. Well, whatever it is, he should clean up this city here, because this city here is like an open sewer, you know? It's full of filth and scum. And sometimes I can hardly take it. Whatever ever becomes the president should just really clean it up. You know what I mean? Sometimes I go out and I smell it. I get headaches. It's so bad, you know? And they just, like... They just never go away, you know? It's like, I think that the president should just clean up this whole mess here. He should just flush it right down the f***ing toilet. Well, uh, I think I know what you mean, Travis. But it's not going to be easy. We're going to have to make some radical changes. Damn straight. Here you go, Travis. Keep the change. Thank you. Basically, he wanted to flush the whole city down the toilet. Yeah. Boy, that politician had a look on his face like, uh, okay, um, <laughs> maybe it's time to get out of the cab now. You know, the, the power, the talent, and the, the uh, ability and, uh, and excellence of Robert De Niro that came through to me as I watched him in this character, even though he had all these issues and he was lonely and all, he also seemed like in many ways kind of an innocent. Like when he went to that campaign headquarters and he was talking to Sybil Shepherd's character. Hi. I'd like to volunteer. Great. I'll take you right over That's here. That's all right. I'd rather volunteer to her if you don't mind. Why do you feel that you have to volunteer to me? Because I think that you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Thanks. But what do you think of Palantine? Charles Palantine, the man you're volunteering to help elect presidents. Well, I'm sure he'll make a good president. I don't know exactly what his policies are, but I'm sure he'll make a good one. You want a canvas? Yeah, I'll canvas. How do you feel about the senator's stand on welfare? I don't really know the senator's stand on welfare, but I'm sure it's a good stand. Yeah. You sure, though? Yeah. Well, we all work together here full-time, day and night, so if you would just like to step over there, I'm sure that the gentleman well, will I, sign you up. Well, I, I drive a taxi at night, so it's kind of hard for me to, to, um, to work in the day. So... Uh, then what exactly do you want? Would you like to come have some coffee and pie with me? Why? Why? Yeah. I'll tell you why. 
I think you're a lonely person. I drive by this place a lot. I see you here. I see a lot of people around you. And I see all these phones and all this stuff on your desk. And it means nothing. And then when I came inside and I met you, I saw in your eyes and I saw the way you carried yourself that you're not a happy person. And I think you need something. And if you want to call it a friend, you can call it a friend. You're going to be my friend? Yeah. What do you say? It's a little hard standing here and asking, so... Five minutes, that's all, just outside. Right around here. I'm there to protect you. <laughs> Come on, just take a little break. I have a break at 4 o'clock, and if you're here... 4 o'clock today? Yes, yes. I'll be here. I'm sure you will. All right. 4 p.m.? Right. Well, Outside in the front? Yes. Okay. Well, my name is Travis. Betsy? Travis. Yeah. Appreciate this, Betsy. <laughs> he just seemed like, I don't know, kind of a, a lonely kid. Yeah, he seemed like a high, like a high school or middle school kid who's asking uh, a girl that he likes out on a date, and it's the first time he's ever asked anybody out, and it's it just felt like that. It felt like, yeah, that's a really great uh, thing to note. He did seem very childlike there. What a talent, because he also portrays all kinds of other emotions, and when things don't go well with that date, he go, he, he subsequently goes back to the campaign headquarters. And he almost gets into a fight with the Albert Brooks character. Let's not have any trouble, okay? You talking about? Why won't you talk to me? Why won't you talk to me? Why don't you answer my calls when I call you? You think I don't know you're here? Let's not have any trouble. You think trouble. I don't know? You think I don't know? Would you please leave? Get your hands off. Okay, then leave, okay? I just want you to know that I know. No, let's I'm not have any trouble. Please, just leave. This isn't the place to do this. Okay, okay. Take your hands off, okay? Then just leave. Take them off! All right, just leave then. Come on. Look, no, come hell. on! You're in a hell, and you're gonna die in a hell like the rest come of them. Come on now, there's a cop across the street. You're like the rest of them. Look, I'm calling the cops. Officer! 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 It's a completely different person. Yeah, but again, kind of childlike, right? Because when a child doesn't get what they want, a lot of times they'll throw a tantrum, and that's kind of what he did with it. in that scene. He was throwing well, a tantrum right. because he didn't he didn't get what he wanted, and he couldn't understand why she was so upset because he 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 was honestly thinking that this is what people did on dates. Like he had no concept of going to like a regular movie theater and seeing like Star Wars or something like that, right? <laughs> like. He was totally taken aback by the fact that she was offended by going to this this pornographic film. He didn't understand that. And then he got really, like, apologetic. Well, tell me why. What? I want to see you again. That is like a child, not a child, maybe a, a young man, young boy. So while we're on the subject of Robert De Niro, two of my favorite films of his are, are maybe lesser known, but I really enjoy them. I never get tired of watching them. True Confessions from 1981, where he plays a priest in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. And The Score from 2001, where he's planning this elaborate heist movie, I think, in Montreal. Those are two. I mean, he's made so many. He's made, uh, I see, I, I looked this up. He's made over 115 films and won an Academy Award, of course, for Godfather Two. Which was right before he won that, right before they started filming this movie, and the producers were afraid he was going to come back and ask for a lot more money. And he said, no, I'll honor my original agreement. So he did this movie for $35,000. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. That speaks to his character, doesn't it? His raw acting talent just really came out in this in this film, I thought. And there's that, there's that one scene that's so famous that, that the line from it is one of the top 25 best lines is from a movie, which is, um, are, you, are you looking at me? You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? 
But who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the f do you think you're talking to? Oh, yeah? Huh? Okay. that scene in the script all it had written in the script was um bickle looks in the mirror that's it he improvised everything else after that and and i was reading that his acting teacher uh from when he was a student used to do that with the students he they would just riff on the same line and, and try saying the same line different ways and so when she saw him in this film she couldn't believe that, that he was using that same thing in the movie and now it's become one of the most famous lines in, in all of it cinema is. oh what a what a superb talent well the the uh we, we can kind of come back and forth with the other people i i uh, wanted to mention how much i enjoyed bernard herman's uh, music which was so different from so many of the other films that, that we've uh, reviewed that he's done the music for. of the jazz uh, music and it, it's got a kind of a melancholy quiet tone to it and um, it perfectly matches the night scenes and the themes in the film and unfortunately he died in December 1975 and I doubt that he saw the final film in his final version because that came out in what February of 1976 yeah and I uh, again I was I did a lot of reading here and, and he went into the recording studio and he couldn't actually do the conducting of the orchestra because he was so ill but he was in the mixing booth and giving direction from there and it was just a few days after they finished up the score that he passed away so he definitely didn't see the final product I imagine his health and, and his emotions may have played some role in the selection of the film's music as well. His daughter said that, that she couldn't believe he was able to do this film because he was so ill. But I, I feel like he's just such a... Like, this this was his life, right? And I, yeah. think, he, I think he felt like he had it in him to do one more film. And he, he it's amazing. He stuck it out to, to just finish it up. There's no strings in the orchestration. No. It's all wind instruments, pretty much, and maybe some percussion instruments. Beautiful music, and don't you agree with it? It's 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 so different from some of, most of his other films. Just a really different take. Oh, totally. I was just looking at all of Robert De Niro's films, and I'm like, I don't know if I can pick one. Backdraft, <laughs> Cape Fear, Goodfellas, Godfather um, Two, Heat, like Heat. Oh I love yes. That, movie. that scene where they're having a gunfight down one of the main streets. I think it's yeah. probably Wilshire one in, of those in, in LA. downtown Los Angeles. Such a great scene. That's amazing. Ronan was a good movie. Uh, and then he plays some funny ones too, like uh, Meet the Fockers. <laughs> yes, and then the one where he was the the retired worker that came back to work in the and, and he was in a suit and very buttoned down. I can't remember the name of it now. Just a few years ago. He can mm -hmm. do comedy, drama, everything. That's amazing. He was in Joker. He played that TV show, kind of talk show host. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's just so versatile. He's so good. Uh, well, the kind of back to the the uh, plot of the film. So he's, he's driving all over Manhattan, New York, the other, the other boroughs, the Bronx, and so forth. He doesn't care where he goes as long as he's working and making some money. And he kind of describes some of the people that he picks up in the cab late at night. And that's uh, <laughs> a very descriptive <laughs> part of his story. And then uh, I think he, 
somewhere along the way here, he has an encounter where Jody Foster dashes out and gets into his cab and says, drive away, drive away, I need to get away. And she's grabbed and taken out of the cab by Harvey Keitel, who gives De Niro a $20 bill and says, thanks, don't, don't worry about this, I'll take care of it. Come on, man. Get me out of here, all right? This is a real drag now. Come on, come on, don't make no sense. You wanna get busted? Kind of be cool. Tabby, just forget about this. It's nothing. Be cool. And he and De Niro holds on to that $20 bill. And it's almost like and I know this is a reach, but from from uh, Harmonica's character in Once Upon a Time in the West where he keeps that harmonica, this $20 oh, yeah. bill shows up again in a really uh, action-packed finale. There's parts yeah. of this film where, where he's, he's on a revenge-avenging uh, mission to save Jodie Foster, and it starts with that that first interaction in the cab. Yeah, I mean, her career is, is amazing, too. And I, I know that this film kind of has a long shadow of things that it influenced, but also, you know, not just in film, but in real life. And they, they, they did, the cast and some of the crew did a reunion, and they, they did a Taxi Driver 40 years later. I, I'm going to try to find that because they, it would be interesting to hear them talk about some of the stories and, and what the impact of that was on their career. But... She was really only 12 years old when she did this in real life, and the character is supposed to be 12 years old. So yeah, I thought she, I mean, she was amazing for being so young, and I think she was nominated for an Academy Award for this role. She may have been. I know she's won for Accused and Silence of the Lambs. I don't know if she, I don't have that in front of me right now. Yeah, this movie was um, nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role with Robert De Niro, Best Actress in a Supporting Role with Jodie Foster, and then Best Music Original Score from Bernard Herrmann. Uh, it didn't win, but it was nominated in 1977. And then it also was nominated in the Golden Globes for Best Actor and Best Screenplay. Um, for the BAFTA Awards, it did win for Best Music, um, for Film Music with Bernard Herrmann. And Most Promising Newcomer, Jodie Foster, Best Supporting Actress, Jodie Foster. So yeah, it's very well regarded. Oh, and it even uh, nominated for a Grammy Award. So yeah, in the beginning of the movie, we're introduced to this character, and we start to learn that he's a loner. He doesn't have a lot of friends. He doesn't have a lot of social interactions. He spends his off hours going to X-rated movies and uh, writing in his journal, trying to sleep, but he doesn't seem to be able to sleep. And then, yeah, he has this uh, run-in with Jodie Foster's character, and that gets him thinking about, um, again, just kind of reinforcing his ideas that the city is just a cesspool and that maybe he's the one who could clean it up. And then he starts obsessing over this woman, Betsy, who's a campaign worker for this uh, senator who's running for the president, Charles Palantine. And the first time I saw that, I thought it's I thought it was Palpatine. And I thought, oh... It's it's the emperor from Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> it was his uh, uh, forebearer, forerunner. Yeah, and he starts obsessing about her, so he'll park his cab out in front of the campaign headquarters and just stare at her. And uh, Albert Brooks's character is like trying to shoo him away at one point, and uh, it's kind of funny. His character is kind of an interesting guy. He he he. I think he kind of likes Betsy too, but he's. He's he's also somewhat socially awkward. <laughs> yes, he is. This was his first film role. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. And again, De Niro's character is like just awkward because he's parked right there staring at him for a long period of time. Yeah. You'd think that he would get... He doesn't little... understand that that would be inappropriate or weird. No. You know? So he finally gets up the nerve to go in and ask Betsy out. And the way he does it is is interesting. He says he wants to volunteer there uh but really he just wants to ask her out for pie and coffee which 
surprisingly works. She actually says yes. He knew nothing about the candidate's agenda, goals, anything. No, he just said, well, I'm sure they're good. I'm sure he's a good guy. I'm sure, you know. <laughs> but do you want to go get on a date with me? I'll buy you a piece of pie. So they go out and they have pie and, and uh, coffee. And then they uh, kind of hit it off in a weird way. I think she finds him very fascinating and odd. And he's just absolutely obsessed. Like, first love. Honestly, like, I think you nailed it. He's kind of like a middle school kid who has experienced love for the first time you know like that feeling of of being in love and she said she said she's never met anybody like him or known anybody like him sure you know what you remind me of what that song by chris christopherson who's that the songwriter he's a prophet He's a prophet and a pusher, partly truth, partly fiction. Walking contradiction. You're saying that about me? Well, who else would I be talking about? I'm no pusher. I never have pushed. No, no, just the part about the contradictions. You are that. But then he goes out and buys a, a record from that artist and wants to give it to her as a gift on their second date, which, again, I'm kind of surprised she decides to go out on a second date with him and this is where he he i don't know he just doesn't know he doesn't know any better but he takes her to a an x-rated film and you know she's she's kind of like okay well let's see where this goes and then as soon as the movie starts she the she looks so uncomfortable oh and she climbs over two or three other people to get out of the theater and then he can't figure out what what's wrong why did she leave and I, I don't know if we uh, said that, that this character is played by Sybil Shepherd, and I, I think this was one of her early roles as well. And she, they, they just look so young. They just look so young. I, I was going to say, I think she'd earlier been in the last picture show from 1971, and this may have been her second film. Okay. But yeah, still one of, one of the first. They're all young enough that all the leads in this film are still active in the business. Yeah, after that's 45 true. years. That's true. So she she she's just shocked and and offended and grossed out and and he's be bewildered and can't figure out why she's so upset and where are you going? I leave now. Why? I don't know why I came in here. I don't like these movies. Well, I mean, I you know I didn't know that you you'd feel that way about this movie. I don't know much about movies, but if I is the only kind of movies you go to? Well, yeah, I mean, I come and they this is not so bad. Taking me to a place like this is about as exciting to me as saying that's. Um, there are other places I can take you. Only other than movies I can take you to. I don't know much about them, but I can take you to other places. Which is different. Wait a second, wait a second. I have to go. You gotta go now. Wait a second, I want to talk to you. Look, I just have to go. Wait a second. Taxi? Can I talk to you at least? I mean, won't you at least talk to me? I didn't know you... Look, won't you take the record? I've already got it. But, but please... Please, I bought it for you, Betsy. Thanks, now get to. Let's go. Can I call you? She gets in a cab and and off she goes. And then there's this really pathetic scene. And I, I was reading that Martin Scorsese thinks that this is one of the most important scenes in the movie where he's on a phone, like a like a payphone almost, trying to call her. Yes. I think he was talking to her, yeah. I think yeah, I think you're right. He was he he was talking to her, but it was so sad. And then the and then the camera pans from him to this empty hallway, and it, and Scorsese says, I wanted to make you feel like this conversation was so pathetic that you didn't even really want to watch it. It was like, well, let's just go look at this empty hallway over here. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was effective. That's the genius of, of his direction. He That, I think, is a trigger for him to kind of go off the deep end, and now he's, now he's becoming obsessed with saving this... Um, this 12-year-old who is uh, played by Jodie Foster and who has fallen in with some a really bad crowd. She's a runaway from home. And, uh, boy, I, I I don't know. Her whole story arc really hit me hard. I, I just, I just like, so terrified for her and so terrified for her parents. And it's just like a parent's worst nightmare. Of, of parents who care about their kids, obviously. Yeah. 
These parents apparently did, we find out later in the film, with the letter that they wrote him. Yeah, that was interesting, because as the film's unfolding, I'm wondering if she came from an abusive home, or maybe her parents were into drugs, and she just didn't have any safety at home, but that doesn't seem to be the case based on the ending of the film. And she does seem like she wants to get away, right? Because she did jump into his cab and, and say, drive, get, you know, drive, just drive. And then I, I think he's, this, his, his, his whole, uh, De Niro, uh, Travis Bickle's whole life is, is continuing to unhinge because he picks up that passenger that's played by Scorsese. Yeah. And they go down so they can, and he wants the Scorsese shows where his wife is up on the second floor of an apartment having an affair with another man, and Scorsese is going to kill the guy or kill her, or kill them both. And De Niro again, he's just sitting there like, like a sponge taking this in, and you, the, the audience is at least for me, I was left to try to imagine what he was going through and what he was thinking about, because it's just a never-ending cycle of strange and awkward behaviors of people well and it's it's kind of interesting too how different pieces of the story feed into it because earlier um one of the other cabbies wizard played by peter boyle says you know you you should have a gun in your cab with you like i can't believe you don't have a gun it's just safety it's like you don't have to use it but just you could show it and it's enough just to show it and so later after he's kind of progressing along this path he does talk to wizard and say hey can you like you know hook me up with some guns and or a gun and then we get this crazy scene in a hotel room where this guy has a briefcase full of like gun different guns and he knows everything about these guns and travis decides to buy what like four of them he buys yeah he buys four everything from this huge uh, magnum uh, pistol or yeah handgun to small ones on the automatic yeah he's he's fully armed and the guy that was selling them looked like he went, you know, from city to silly city with suitcases full of weapons or drugs. He probably did. And it's funny because once Travis bought the four and he had all this money, then he's like, well, can I get you a Cadillac? Do you want drugs? You know, he's like, I can hook you up with anything you want. And he, I think he felt like he had a hot one on the line. Like, oh, this guy's got some money and he's buying. Like, what else can I sell him? <laughs> I can get you a new Cadillac with the, the, all the papers, the pink slip and all for $2,000. Yeah. And this, wow. You know, part part of what makes this resonate with me is that that kind of life exists, both you know in the street life and the character that Jody Foster plays and Harvey Keitel and this guy, the gun dealer. I mean, it really is a depiction of of real things, real people. It felt totally real to me. Totally real. There was nothing in this film that I felt was overly blown out of proportion. No. I mean, there was one thing where he, there's a scene later where he straps that Magnum gun in a holster on him, and it was literally like half the size of his body, I felt like. <laughs> <laughs> he, they may have borrowed it from uh, the Dirty Harry movie. I don't think it was huge. I laughed out loud at that. I, I thought, you're going to walk around with that thing? I was like, good thing he had a really big coat to hide all these guns. Jeez. Or not a good thing. I don't know how you, it's like, yeah. For him, the, it was a good thing. The one uh, scene that was strange to me is when he goes to one of the uh, uh, campaign events and there's a Secret Service guy there and he talks to him and he just... Is it hard to get to be in the Secret Service? Why? Well, I was just curious because I think I'd be good at it. I'm very observant. I was in the Marine Corps, you know, I'm good with crowds. I noticed a little, little pin there. That's like a signal, isn't it? Sort of. A signal. A secret signal for a secret service. Hey, what kind of guns do you guys carry? 38s, 45s, 357 Magnums, something bigger, maybe? Hey, look, uh, if you're really interested, if you give me your name and address, we'll send you all the information on how to apply. How's that? You will? Sure. Okay. Why not? My name is Henry Crinkle, K-R-I-N-K-L-E. 154 Hopper Avenue, 
popper. Yeah. You know, like a rabbit's hip hop. <laughs> Fell on the jersey. Is there a zip code with that, Henry? Yeah, 610452. Okay. That's uh, six digits. Oh, well, 61045. Okay. I was thinking of my telephone number. Well, I've got it all. Henry, we'll get all the stuff right out to you. Thanks a lot. Hey, great. I would, I don't, I can't imagine anybody doing that, talking to the Secret Service guy. Gives him all this false information and that he yeah. wants to become a, 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 a member of the Secret Service. That seemed, a, I haven't connected on why he did that. Well, I think it's because it was it was like his fantasy life, right? It was part of his fantasy life of leading this. Uh, oh yeah, because then he talks service. to his parents about it. Because he wrote Because yeah. earlier it seems like he'd written he'd written earlier to his parents about how he couldn't give him give them his address because of the secret work that he does for the government, and then I think he meets up with the secret service guy, and he's like so fascinated with this life that he just can't help himself but go talk to him. Because he wants to find out more about it, and then and then a little later we find out he writes another letter to his parents saying that I still can't tell you my address because of yeah. the secret work that I do. So I think it just played into his fantasy. One of the things I didn't really understand is why did he 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 did make an attempt on that politician's life. He was gonna try to assassinate him. At least that's yes. what I thought. When yeah, so I don't really understand that subplot of 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 that of why he wanted to assassinate the the politician. My take on that is that that, that breakup that he had with Sybil Shepherd's character really upset him immensely, enormously. And then he started to blame the uh, the presidential candidate for his issues and problems. And this was maybe a way to get back at what she had done to him in his mind. That's true, because does, he does say after they have that fight uh, at the campaign headquarters that that he realizes that she's just like all the rest of them. Because I think yeah. he built her up in his mind as like this perfect person who, you know, had no flaws. And and then they have this breakup. And well, it wasn't even a breakup. They went on a date and a half. Uh, but they have this fight. And then like it's kind of shattered his, his vision of her. So maybe, yeah, maybe he's blaming the politician for corrupting her or something like that. You know, before his failed assassination attempt on that candidate... Uh, and after he talks to that Secret Service guy, he decides he's going to change his life. He's going to start building his body, eating better. And, and it was interesting to watch his apartment change. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, when, it got when, picked up and When he started, up and... it was just a pit. He was burning roses, and there was crap all over the floor. And then when he's all ready to do his, his next assignment, which is to go after that candidate, you look at his apartment, the bed is all made. It's like he was getting ready for an inspection in the Marine Corps. And he shaved his head. Yeah, that was a great reveal. I love that reveal. And, of course, I knew about it. But I imagine if you'd never seen the movie and you didn't know it was coming, that as they're, as they're, they're at that campaign rally in Columbus Circle, and he, he's at the edge of the crowd, and they, the camera kind of pans up his body, and then reveals that he's got a mohawk, and it was whoa. That's that was unexpected. I read where he did so much research about the military, as he always does for the films that he does, and that I guess during the Vietnam War there were people that would go on these dangerous assignments, and and if they had shaved their head like that, you didn't want anything to do with them because they were on a mission to kill somebody. Oh, it, it came out of what he was reading from some of the exploits during the uh, Vietnam War. So it's, it, it, it wasn't just a part of the script. But he may have, I don't, I'm, probably wasn't the script, but the way it was put together, which it was surprising to me when it shows up. Yeah, yeah, it was very effective. Great, great transformation of his character and, and such a great range of his acting too. So then at some point, either before or after that, I think, no, it was before that he had gone over to meet with iris who is the jodie foster character because he wants to try to like pull her out of there and just say come on come with me come with me i'll pay for you to go home and and she's so terrified that she 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 doesn't 
go for it at that point. And they they have that great kind of scene in the cafe where where uh, he buys her some pie or something like that. And so, what makes you so high and mighty? Will you tell me that? Didn't you ever try looking in your own eyeballs in the mirror? So what are you going to do about sporting that old bastard? When? When you leave. I don't know, I'll just leave him, I guess. Yeah, you're just going to leave? Well, yeah, they got plenty of other girls. Yeah, but you just can't do that. What are you going to do? What do you want me to do, call the cops? Well, the cops don't do nothing, you know that. Hey, look, Sport never treated me bad. I mean, he didn't beat me up or anything like that once. But you can't allow him to do the same to other girls. You can't allow him to do that. He is the lowest kind of person in the world. Somebody's got to do something to him. He's the scum of the earth. He's the worst sucking scum I have ever, ever seen. You know, he told me about you. He's he calling you names. He called you a little piece of chicken. He doesn't, he, he doesn't mean that. I'll move up to one of them communes in Vermont. I don't, I never seen a commune before, but I don't know, you know. I saw some pictures once in a magazine. It didn't look very clean. Well, why don't you come to the commune with me? Well, come, come to the commune with you? No, no. <laughs> why not? I, I, don't, I don't go to places like that. Oh, come on, why not? Nah, I don't get along with people like that. Are you a scorpion? What? That's it, you're a scorpion. I can tell every time. Besides, I gotta stay here. Come on, why? I got something very important to do. Oh, so what's so important? Doing something for the government. Cab thing is just part-time. Are you a narc? Do I look like an arc? Yeah. <laughs> I am an arc. <laughs> God. I don't know who's weirder, you or me. <laughs> sure you don't want to come with me, huh? Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the money to go. Oh, no, look, you don't have to do that. No, no, I want you to take it. I don't want you to take anything from them. I want to do it. I don't have anything better to do with my money. I might be going away for a while. I read that they rehearsed that scene so much that she would just get bored. And oh. But he was like, no, come on. This is the craft of acting. We just have to. And, and so they got so good that they could almost just improvise because they had done it so many times. And she said that he, that she credits De Niro for really teaching her that craft of acting and really opening her eyes to what acting could be. That's so believable. And, and yet when he's first trying to convince her to leave her lifestyle where she's at with that horrible Keitel character, he, he, he seems so strangely surprised that she wouldn't just come with him. Yeah. Again. Yeah. This is awful. You need to leave. And after seeing Keitel with her, I was like, I'm ready to go back and get even, you know, for the way he's doing that. Because this isn't the first 12-year-old he's had under his... No. And, and, you, and, you get a, and, you, and you get a complete understanding of how manipulative and controlling he is and how she feels that he actually loves her and that, that he's got her best interest in mind. And, you know, we as an audience know that that's absolutely not true, that he's a complete user and and he's a pimp obviously so he's he's just after the money De Niro's got going through this training he's learning how to use his guns he builds this this rig that can hide in his sleeve so that he can just have yeah, the gun, that was like pretty shoot ingenious. out from his sleeve and and then he, he he goes to Columbus Circle and makes an attempt on the senator's life and that fails so then he decides that well it's gonna it's time to go liberate uh, Iris from this these awful people and then we get that last 15 minutes of the movie where I, I guess there was a lot of back and forth with the ratings commission around that scene. And originally the movie was going to be rated X because it was so violent. 
and they had some suggestions and he and Scorsese kind of laughed he said that well some of their suggestions actually made the scene more impactful did you notice how they desaturated the the color of the film yes in that part I did and I also read that it took a long time to film that to get it to get it done and uh, I just wanted to toss in Travis Bickle also uh, shoots and kills a guy in a convenience store Oh, yeah. One of his first adventures with the gun. He's in there buying something, and the guy's robbing the convenience store. And the owner of the convenience store uh, saves uh, Travis and takes the gun and says, don't worry, get out, get out, I'll, I'll handle it. Because it's yeah. the third time I've been uh, uh, robbed in the last month or something like that. That whole scene was so brutal and oh. so unexpectedly graphic. And Ooh. and then the, the, the owner starts beating that a robber with a cane or a club or something. I feel like I could talk for a half an hour just about that scene. Yes. I'm going to run out of time here. But that was, there's so many dynamics at play in that scene, like with racial inequity and yep. injustice and just the fact that he was a black man that got shot. And yeah, he was he was holding up the convenience store. But I mean, they, they basically just murdered him right there in the store and then covered it up. And that's terrible. I had the same reaction to the scene between Keitel and Foster when Keitel was... It was just creepy to me to watch him with her oh, near the totally. end of the film. I just wanted totally. to get up and scream at him, you, you know. But anyway, so we get to that final, that, yeah, the color changes, and uh, he the, the $20 bill comes into place. Yeah. And man, that gun battle, <laughs> the whole thing was, what what choreography to pull that off it reminded me of a, a, a quentin tarantino movie yes you know there's uh, there's reservoir dogs and a lot of his movies obviously where they have these gun battles and it had a feel of that to me obviously way so, so scorsese must have been an influence for tarantino De Niro sitting on the couch he's been shot and he pull, puts his finger up to his head like he's gonna he's he's uh gonna imitate killing himself and the police those two police officers are just I'm not sure they know what to do. Yeah, they just mesmerize, yeah. It's terrible. But I thought that was going to be the end of the movie, but the timestamp said there was still like eight minutes left. I'm like, what is there left to do in this film? Well, yeah. (laughs) Because I thought he was dead. It turns everything around. He becomes, uh, Travis Bickle becomes a hero. Yeah, that was not at all what I was expecting. He shoots these gangland prostitute uh, purveyors, and he gets this really wonderful letter from the from the parents of of, uh, Jody uh, Foster. Dear Mr. Bickle, I can't say how happy Mrs. Steensma and I were to hear that you are well and recuperating. We tried to visit you at the hospital when we were in New York to pick up Iris, but you were still in a coma. There is no way we can repay you for returning our Iris to us. We thought we had lost her, and now our lives are full again. Needless to say, you are something of a hero around this household. I'm sure you want to know about Iris. She's back in school and working hard. The transition has been very hard for her, as you can well imagine. We have taken steps to see she has never caused to run away again. In conclusion, Mrs. Steensma and I would like to again thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Unfortunately, we cannot afford to come to New York again to thank you in person, or we surely would. But if you should ever come to Pittsburgh, you would find yourself a most welcome guest in our home. Our deepest thanks, Bert and Ivy Steensma. He'd given Foster earlier money to get back home to Pittsburgh, and he gets mm-hmm. this wonderful letter from the from the parents, and the parents look like they might be, you know, uh, quite old, quite old, or yeah. older anyway. For how young she is, yeah. And then he's back to driving, and guess who he picks up? Sybil Shepherd, but he doesn't want to have anything to do with her. No, he, yeah. no, he's she's off his list completely. But what about that last scene? He drops her off and she leaves the cab, and he's going down the street. He looks in the rearview mirror, and he sees something, and his demeanor changes to like surprise. And I, I wonder 
What did he see? That very ending. Yeah, I don't. I didn't read it that way. I read it more like it was more like you up to that point from when you have the gun battle to that scene with the rear view mirror, you kind of think, Oh, maybe he's gotten some help and maybe he's back on, maybe he's on more of a, like trying to get healthy and well again, because he seems like more put together, right? Kind of um, yeah, he does. as he's driving civil shepherd. But then I think that, I think that that scene with the mirror is just a way to tell the audience that no, he's still the crazy guy that went in and like oh. murdered all those people in, in the, in the uh, house of ill repute. Um, oh, okay. That that makes a lot of sense. That's the way I read it. It was just, yeah, it was because he, I think he's learning to put on a front of like normalcy and, um, and, but that was just a, a way to say, no, he still got all those same issues. But I watched the credits all the way through and there's at the very end with the music, there's just this, this view of the cars going down the road and the music's playing and it's just, it's just very moody and and yeah it's it gives you this feeling of there's all these stories happening in new york city and this was just one of them almost that's kind of the way yeah like as that old film the naked city there are eight million stories in the big city and this is one of them what was your rating oh gosh i i think i'm gonna give it a 10 i was i loved it so good i think i'm gonna come in with an eight just, oh, okay. Just I, I liked it a lot. It's it's not certainly not a bad movie in any any stretch of the imagination. I just it kind of hit that scene with Keitel and Foster just threw me off in the language that Keitel described her to De Niro. It was just I know that's realistic. I just found it off putting. That's a personal. No, totally, totally fair, totally fair. I was I was that, those grossed me out too. But I I, I just. I, maybe I'm coming in and I had kind of low expectations for this movie because I was thinking that it was, I don't know. I just heard so much about it. I thought, well, it can't be as good as everything I've heard. And then, and then I was immediately sucked into it. And wow, that was even better than I expected. <laughs> so, so yeah, a nine or a 10, it's, it's kind of near the top of the rating for me. What's up next now? I know we're Chinatown, isn't it? Are we doing Chinatown next? Oh, let's see. I got my list right here. Yes, we're doing Chinatown. It's Netflix DVD. I still need to send him those uh, questions you sent me. I got to do that today. Okay, well, I got to go kind of get myself mentally ready for this meeting. and Get out of the, the dark, dank streets of New York. <laughs> yes, to the mean streets of North Bend. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. So that's our review of Taxi Driver. And coming to you from North Bend, this is Matt. And from Los Angeles, Bob, wishing you all happy movie watching and a great uh, weekend. Mm-hmm.